Welcome to the Chuck Shoot Podcast. Uh, my guests today are Mark and Kim Holinsky. They are the parents of Washington State quarterback Tyler Holinsky. So Tyler was a very bright young star at Wazoo. He, he had already made some amazing plays in his playing time there. And he was likely to make a huge jump uh, the following year into, a, into the starting quarterback. Unfortunately, Tyler became a victim of mental illness and he died by suicide. And this tragedy shook not only his team, but I think the whole school and really the sports world and really the whole country. I mean, if you followed the story and you heard about this, I mean, it was heartbreaking and obviously, you know, affected his family the most. Um, but his parents started Holinsky's Hope. This is a nonprofit foundation with the goal of keeping Tyler's memory alive. Uh, but they do so much more than that. They have, um, you know, they're raising awareness and reducing the stigma of mental illness and also educating people about what they can do. Um, so I was listening to a podcast right after I did this interview. It's called the mindset mentor with Rob dial. And he was, it just, I think this happened to line up with, with the interview I just did. And he was talking about how, you know, right now the world needs leaders. And, you know, usually when you're feeling bad, you're thinking about yourself. And when you feel good, it's because you're focusing on purpose, like the purpose that we, you know, have in this world. It's, it's usually for most people that purpose involves helping somebody in some way. And that's why I think uh, what the Helinskis are doing is so great. And I'm just glad that I could give them a form to tell their story. And I hope this opens up some eyes to mental health and how important it is. Uh, the biggest takeaway I hope you get is that if you're struggling with depression or anxiety, um, reach out and ask for help. You know, if you feel like you did not get that help, just keep asking, ask different people, but don't give up. Um, likewise, you know, if you're worried about somebody else that you think is going through a tough time, um, you know, keep reaching out to them. Don't give up. Um, and I think that Helinski story resonates. I, I hope that it resonates with some of you and, and creates a discussion and maybe makes you think about either yourself that maybe you're struggling and you need help or somebody that you know who may be struggling. And I think they've already helped so many people. And so hopefully this can help some more people. Even if this episode helps one person, I think that's amazing. Hi, Charles. Hey, this is, or is it Charles or Chuck? Which one do you prefer? Uh, Chuck is good. Yeah, Charles is my birth name, but everybody calls me Chuck. Yeah, my dad is a Charles, and he always went by Chuck, too. Exactly. Um, and so Mark's right here with me, too. Oh, hi, Mark. Hi, Chuck. How are you? Good, good. So you guys ready? We are, yeah. We are together. We're uh, at my cell phone speaker, and I think most of the podcasts we've done before have, have we done them uh, this way too, unless they're uh, video as well. But we like to do it from the same phone and sitting next to each other. That way, we sort of can tell who's going to answer the question, and we don't end up talking on top of each other. Sure, that makes sense. So. Sounds good. So, um, yeah, here's what I'd like to do is maybe just talk a little bit about you guys and then a lot about Tyler. And then of course, follow up with, uh, everything, all the good things that you're doing with Helensky's hope. Okay, sure. Okay. That's so, so Mark is an entrepreneur and Kim, I didn't realize this. You're a lawyer. Yeah. Well, not really anymore. I mean, I was, I've been practicing since 90, 90 in, uh, California. And then we moved to South Carolina last year, and I you have to take the bar again. Um, there's not a lot of reciprocity, but not very many states offer that. So I was like, you know what? I did it for almost 30 years. I'm done. Okay. 
And then, so how yeah. did you two meet? Uh, at a swimming pool. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was my last, I was always a swim instructor and a lifeguard uh, through college. And so was Mark. We just had, we were at the same pool. And right, it was the last summer before I was going to law school. And I thought, you know what, I'll never probably ever have a job working outside again. I'm going to, you know, before I start in the fall, I'm going to do one last, you know, gig as a life instructor or a lifeguard and swim instructor. And Mark happened to be the pool manager. Oh. Uh, so that was it. Okay. Yeah. So you two fell in love. You got married. You had a son. Your first son was Kelly. And then yeah. uh, a few years later, uh, May 26, 1996, Claremont, California, Tyler is born. Uh, and yeah. you said that he was the biggest of the three boys, weighted at 10 yeah. pounds. 10 pounds, 10 ounces. 10, yeah, and 24 inches. Is that, that's, yeah. that's above average for a baby? I don't, I don't know what average is for I, I think so. Um, it felt above average. I could see that for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was a really big, chubby, and long, too. But <laughs> you know, they were all pretty big. What? Nine pounds, just shy of 10 pounds, both Kelly and Ryan, and all of them were about 24 inches or so. Um, so I'll tell you what, when they're that big, you feel like, uh, they're not so little, they're still little, but they're, yeah. you don't feel as casual holding them. And, and uh, it was actually good for us. <laughs> yeah. Was he a happy baby? Was he a fussy baby? Was, do you remember that? Well, he was, he was the easiest of the three, mm. right? Not, not fussy at all. Okay. Um, Mark always says he's just, you know, content either sitting on our, you know, our hips or laying on our chest or, you know, just sitting on our laps. He was just that kind of kid uh, and just, you know, beautiful on top of it all. Which yeah. <laughs> and so from the moment he could like hold a ball, he was always holding a ball and he, he slept with a baseball glove because he liked the way it smelled. Exactly. I do remember that. That was a, our first Claremont house, and I, we walk in to uh, see him. He's sleeping there with his glove, you know, kind of had it tucked in between his arms. And I remember asking him the next morning. He said, "It just smells so good." <laughs> and he and he also liked basketball. He, he uh, ended up shooting a lot of baskets, basket after basket, in the hoop in the family driveway. Yeah, we had this this great story actually about him. Um, they always the Catholic in Claremont and we that's where we went to math too and he never got in trouble. He was sort of a teacher's pet. They all loved him. And uh but he did do something one day and I can't remember what it was. It probably wasn't significant, but I remember picking him up from school and telling him that he had to sit at the you know the dining table which was actually right up against the driveway. You used to look out of the window and see the hoop um in the driveway. And I came around the corner from the kitchen, and there he was with his elbows on the windowsill and his chin, you know, just sort of resting in the palm of his hand, staring out at the basketball hoop. And I just, you know, I kept walking by, and he just whipped his buds, and I finally said, okay, Tyler, go shoot your hoop. Just so sweet, you know. So he was, he was described as a little bit of a goofball, kind of a mama's boy, almost, and really kind of a homebody, right? But they're also very down to earth. Oh, yeah. He, definitely a homebody. All of our kids really are, are sort of homebodies. I mean, they, they like to go out. They have their friends. 
but they also just like to hang out at home and, and we're big movie watchers. Yeah. Um, going to the movies, um, watching them at home, whatever. We just love doing that together. Um, and, and Tyler was probably out of all of our kids, maybe Ryan too. He, he loved the movies the most. What were some of his favorite movies? Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mark probably knows. I mean, he, he liked the goofball one too, right? Mark? Yeah. He liked, um, he liked the funny movies. He liked the Will Ferrell movies. <laughs> um, he, he liked um, the books he read were sort of the the you know the the young adult sort of mystery fantasy hmm. collection you know and um, easy read sort of story based you know easy read but he had this he wanted to be a director at one point he wanted to tell stories and oh. he thought that might be a might be a really neat way to do it and and so as, as he was playing football and, you know, there's not a lot of schools that specialize in movie filmmaking and stuff. So he had his eye on USC a little bit. And, um, but as he got to Washington State, he he sort of, you know, flipped over to maybe wanting to coach. And oh. he thought he could be really effective being a coach, which he didn't really seem, it, that was never really a thing, you know, growing up or he was he was a he was a great leader, but um, and and he was really smart, whip smart about football and and the playbook and all that stuff. But I think as he got older, he he saw the you know at least what he told me he saw the opportunity to help other people, and mm. he thought that might be a, a better thing. So yeah, he he liked them all. I mean, he liked the. Um, you know, like the uh, um, Lincoln is the one that I remember yeah. the most. That we we I'd come home from court, or Mark would come home from work, and sometimes there would be uh, Tyler um, sitting there watching Lincoln for a lot, with you know the twelfth time. Uh, <laughs> wow! The movies that actually uh, again, he liked the silly movies, but movies that actually you know meant something. He learned a lot from them. But okay. we have we have these memories too of. of this is how he learned how to play poker. Um, he would watch ESPN and all the Texas Hold'em tournaments and the poker tournaments. And uh, we used to think, oh, my God, how does this kid know how to play poker at, you know, four or five years old? Oh, and, wow. Uh, why is he watching it, you know, all the time on television? I think just the cards and it was um, – not that he was great at it, but it was <laughs> – Interesting. Yeah, that's you know? no. That so. What age did he get into football then? I started playing. Um, Kelly, I coached the team. You know, seven, seven to uh, seven to nine year olds, and he, Kelly was eight. Um, Tyler was you know almost seven, mm. and and they they played on the same team together. But Tyler was so much smaller, you know, age wise that. A nine-year-old and a seven-year-old are, are can be very big gaps and stuff. So he, he started playing then. But Tyler was um, Tyler played. He was really great at a lot of things, and, and I don't, you know, not to, but he was just naturally kind of athletic. So he was great at soccer. You mm-hmm. know, he'd be the top goal scorer. You know, guy on the team. His basketball, he'd be the high scorer there, and loved to love to compete. Loved to play baseball, he 
You know, he played hit home runs with a broken thumb. I mean, he just he just loved to be doing something athletic and sports related. He didn't really get into skiing or sur- or surfing or, or snowboarding or anything like that. He liked a lot of the team sports. He he liked golf. He played with my parents when hmm. he would go see them in Arizona. Um, in Arizona. And he loved to just sort of go to the range, and that would be something that he and I could do. And of the three, he's the only one that really sort of liked doing it. You know, they, mm-hmm. they all do it, and they, but they burn through, you know, 50 balls and time to go do something else. And Tyler could sit and, you know, work through an hour or two and have a lot of fun. So he, he was really good at a lot of things. He, he liked football. Um, and then, but you know, he went through a stage because he was playing on Kelly's team where Kelly was so tall, we would use him as the quarterback. And Kelly wasn't very, wasn't as athletic, so he could, but he could throw far, you know, that kind of stuff. So Russ Tyler would play receiver or running back or whatever, sort of there. And wasn't Tyler Kelly's backup QB in high school at one point? Yeah, in high school he was. Yeah. And at Notre Dame High School, he was. He Tyler went to two different high schools. We moved. We were out in the Valley in California. And, um, Tyler, Kelly went to Notre Dame High School. And Tyler was two, two grades younger. So as a freshman, um, he played on the freshman team. Yeah. So yeah. he was a freshman. Okay. So, but yeah. And then, then, go on. Sorry. Well, there, there's a big, so the whole thing in, in high school football in California was you, you really wanted to have your sophomore and junior years as your, you know, your primary tape years for college football. So you wanted mm. to go somewhere where you could play as a sophomore. And if you couldn't play as a sophomore, you absolutely had to play as a junior and you had to play really well. Um, senior season, um, you know, pretty much all the recruiting was done. So he had, um, so he played, he was on a, an undefeated, you know, freshman team on Notre Dame, uh, which Notre Dame was really good in, in the Valley League. And, um, Kelly did great there and had a lot of fun, but we moved back to Claremont for other reasons. And us and Tyler ended up at Upland High School, which was a very big, you know, division. Well, the divisions are different now, but one of, in the top division, they, they were, you know, one of the top five co- uh, conferences and leagues. So he, Got a lot of competition there, won that job, and had a phenomenal, you know, junior season and just enjoyed it and won a bunch of games and set a bunch of records. And so that's stuff. when the colleges start uh, sniffing around, and he got offers from Cal and Utah State and obviously Wazoo. So why did he des- – what made him decide on Wazoo? Well, I don't – you know, Wazoo was his first um, – it was his first – Big Division One offer, and he he liked he liked the idea of playing in the Pac-12. Um, but I think specifically Washington State and Coach Leach, when Ryan or when Tyler was recruited, um, you know, Coach Wilson would come up and watch him throw and talk to our head coach and talk to us a little bit and talk to Tyler, and he said, you know, with with Coach, you really have to be able to throw the ball 150 times a day without injuring yourself because that's all we do is throw. <laughs> right. And, and so, right. So, I mean, you can, Mike or coach Lee to many, many, many 
comments on this kind of stuff. Tyler had a really good arm. He had a super accurate arm. He was very mobile. Um, you know, for six four two twenty, he was he was really pretty quick. He, um, so I think he liked the idea of playing at Washington State because that system. You know, if you, if you re- it really goes back to this. Tyler is a backyard, you know, a backyard football guy. He mm-hmm. just he wants to play offense all the time, right? So it's, let me throw, let me throw, let me throw, <laughs> whatever. At, at school, you know, during recess, out with his brothers on Thanksgiving weekend, or on his high school or college football team, he wants to throw. And you also know that coach gives them, coach Leach gives them a play, and it's really a suggestion. And each each play is a pass play with a run play backup, and I don't, you know, Tyler would just never check into the run very often. You know, <laughs> Luke would do it. He just didn't do it. Like Coach joked about it, but why would I hand it to a guy that's a foot away than when I can throw it to a guy that's twelve yards away, further, you know, closer to the end zone? All of those little jokes and stuff. But that's sort of how Tyler thought anyway. Yeah. So I think the idea of going there and doing that. Now, Cal was interesting because Cal came on later, but the recruiting process with Cal, he had been there. He went to junior day. He went to camp there. We we flew up and went to a camp. Um, he talked to uh, Coach Franklin, who was the offensive coordinator there, and a bunch. And he didn't get his offer until, he'd after, until after he had already committed to Wazoo, and he didn't like the idea of not of, of decommitting. He thought, you know, the name, Cal name might be a little bit stronger. You know, just this is what they, you know, what kids go through anyway. Mm-hmm. But I mean, at the end, I think he really liked the coaches and he liked the people and um, he liked Wazoo and he was just going to make the best of it. And, you know, if you piece all this stuff out, which is really important to, to the guys that are being recruited at quarterback is, you know, Luke is probably going to go in the draft his, you know, after his junior year and not stick around, and that'll give him more opportunity, and he mm. can fight for the job and all that, you know, that stuff. Right. But, and then that didn't happen, of course, and then we had 2017 season, which was sort of a mixed bag. You know, he got in a couple times, and I thought played just amazingly well. But you have to, you know, you have to stop the other guys from scoring, too. Um, right. <laughs> so with Mike to. Leach, he, part of the reason he went to Wazoo is Mike Leach. Can we take a tangent for a second? Do you have any good Mike Leach stories? I, I just, I love a good Mike Leach story. Like something that maybe isn't in the press. Well, I mean, I don't know if this, if a, we have, have we started this? Oh, we, I think we are. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, you know what I remember? And this is, I think, part of the reason why, uh, why Tyler chose Washington State is in our family we go on a lot of walks and a lot of bike rides. That was mm-hmm. sort of our thing. We lived in this town in Claremont that was, they had, the village was just down the street. You could go and you could get you know a smoothie, you could get a yogurt, you could get a slice of pizza. It was all the movie theater. We always walked to the movie theater. But a lot of times, Tyler and I would go for a walk or a bike ride at seven or eight o'clock at night, and the phone would ring, and and it would be Coach Lee, and they would be on the phone. For an hour, an hour and a half, <laughs> all through our entire walk, we'd end up getting, you know, some pizza, but he'd still be talking to Coach Leach, and they would talk about anything, 
And honestly, I don't really remember them talking about football so much. <laughs> it was just, you know, they, they would talk about stories. They'd share stories about, you know, each other's childhood. And um, I, I do remember that, you know, just enjoying listening to them and their conversation and, you know, watching Tyler smile as he was talking to Coach. Wow. I know it's probably Mark. That's crazy because I always thought the head coaches of a D1 football team would just be way too busy. A lot of the recruiting would be put off on the assistants. That's amazing that he spent an hour. Wow. Yeah. Well, remember, I mean, Mike doesn't have an offensive coordinator or a quarterback coach. That's true. That's true. That's all him. But a lot of these places, they have, you know, several guys that are, that are important. And I think, you know, he, um, Coach Leach would go on his walk at Washington State, mm. and that's when he would be able to get on the phone. He wouldn't have anybody pulling at him. You know, he's surrounded by, you know, guys, Super Dave, and some of those guys that sort of manage his schedule and stuff, but it's hard. I mean, we've been on trips with him where Ryan, I think when Ryan had his visit up there, we sat and we were talking about his pieces of eight, and, and we were well past, you know, the visit, and practice had started. Tyler had already left. Tyler came by and grabbed some stuff out of Coach's office and um, and they were trying to get him out of there. But you could just, like if you could just sit and watch, they they don't tell him it's time. They just sort of try to, you know, circle the wagon and get him out there. But man, when he wants to talk about pirates and pieces of eight <laughs> and all that stuff, it's, it, he's just going to do it and, and yeah. everything else is gonna have to wait but i i mean there's a there's a million stories i think the funny one which is i don't think it's out there and it's most of them for us is is always about luke you know Mm -hmm. um luke was and we've talked to luke obviously since then and about this and stuff but you know luke um luke falk the other quarterback right luke falk sorry so luke was a, a much more serious guy and coach, you know, coach likes to drift off. And so they'd have these competitions because Luke would get more and more mad. They want, he wanted to go in, do the work, and get out. And so the quarterbacks had sort of an agreement. I think this has been told before, but they have an agreement. Don't ask him a question. Like when he's done, <laughs> let's just everybody don't say anything, get up. And so they would do this. And then Tyler at the end of those would always go, you know, coach. I don't know. I don't understand why, whatever the question is. I don't understand why, you know, cover two always gets disguised this way or that. Oh, well, let me tell you. First of all, back in, you know, wherever, Minnesota, when they first saw, he would just randomly go off on these camps. And it, they would do it sort of as a, as a needling thing to, to, to loop. But, um, oh, that's funny. But all in good, all in good fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I think the funny, the funniest one though, Chuck really is, and and you have to have him. He's the one that Tyler does a good impression of him, but he when he thinks that you've missed an open receiver, he, he has a tendency to kind of exaggerate it. He would always say, you know, Luke, if you forgot how to throw the football, kick the fucking thing to him. He's <laughs> wide open. What do you do? <laughs> right? That is funny. <laughs> So it, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, so Tyler chooses Wazoo. He gets to Wazoo. 
the first couple of years, like you said, he, you know, he's kind of the backup to Luke Falk. Uh, how was he, was he getting antsy trying to waiting for his turn those first few years or did he enjoy his time at Wazoo? You know, he, well, he first, he had a great group of friends. Most of them were off the football team. Um, and so his teammates were also his good friends too. And they were also his roommates. So, uh, and yeah, yeah, I think he, he wanted to get on the field and march and go more in depth than that. But I think he really enjoyed his time up there. Uh, I know we know he was homesick. We do remember, um, the first mm-hmm. few weeks, you know, he sort of figured out that, you know, he really missed being at home and being with his family. But, you know, he battled through that and again found that great group of friends and teammates. Um, and as far as getting on the field, you know, I think every competitive athlete, you know, wants, wants their day on the field, right? Wants their time. But I, mean, I didn't talk to Tatter as much about football as, as Mark did, and, and we can elaborate on that more. I, I, don't, I think like anybody, I mean, like Tim said, they, they want to play. Um, Tyler and I would watch his uh, expos, uh, his practice. Um, you know, every other week or so when they'd be in, in season or when they had camps and stuff. And he'd call me and, and, you know, I'd get a chance to log on and watch some of the practice throws or some of the drills or whatever they did. And he'd point out stuff that he needed to fix and things he could do better and so forth. But, he, you know, one thing that Coach always taught them or tried to was you really just have to focus on yourself and your team and you can't really – you know, it's not your job or his job to worry about what Luke's doing or what Anthony's doing or any of that. And so I think Tyler was really good at that. He was he was anxious because he he we would always come and see him and he and he felt like it was a wasted trip if he didn't get to play and all that stuff. And we just told him, you know, we just loved being there and seeing him and seeing him after the games and hanging out with him over the weekend and that kind of stuff. So football mattered. It was fun. It was something we all did, but it wasn't wasn't the reason we went it was to go see Tyler and then as he played you know that last year as he got a chance to play um when the game wasn't you know either when Luke would get hurt or the game was sort of out of control the wrong way they they try to wake up you know the quarterback room by putting in a new guy so you have obviously the boys state game which you know wasn't a perfect game by any stretch there was some but it but it was in the end right it was, mm-hmm. it was a win a but big, yeah, and before that, he he had his first uh, touchdown when he was a sophomore at the Arizona game. It was a seventy-one yard bomb to Craycraft, and I remember that yeah. game because it was a blot. And they put it's kind of like you said, they put him in, and he didn't hand the ball off and run the clock out. He threw a bomb, <laughs> so he must have just yeah, been well, like, Yeah, I think his final stats were like fifteen for seventeen hundred and seventy yards and two touchdowns. I mean, they mm-hmm. they just you know. And then it's funny, then a year later against Arizona, we're down by 21 again in the first half. And Tyler goes in at the end, right at the, the last drive we had before the, the halftime. And we we marked the ball all the way down the score, closed the gap a little bit. Then we kicked off, if I remember right, and they ran it all the way back and kicked a field goal. So it only meant four points. And then he threw for 509 yards or something in the second half and had four touchdowns, but also four, four picks. So, right. um, but, but, bef- that, but yeah. 
But before that, before that game, um, there was, yeah, let's go back to that Boise State game. And Kim, I think, was at the game. But they put him in in the uh, first day. I think they benched Falk and they put Tyler in and then they put Falk back in. But then Falk got, went down in the fourth quarter. So they put him in with 10 minutes left and they were down 31 to 10. And somehow he leads this crazy comeback, quadruple overtime, wins the game, and they actually put him up on the player's shoulders. I've never – that's pretty rare, I think, for a team to do that. It was uh, – it well, it was magical to be there. And like Mark said, we would go to the game when Tyler was – we knew Tyler wasn't going to start. We never really thought he was going to play unless somebody got injured or like Mark said, it was sort of a lopsided score. Uh, so we have to divide our games uh, mm. because we had to stay home with Ryan unless Ryan had a bye because he was playing on Friday night. So our whole deal was, you know, you watch as much as you could of Ryan's game, mm. book at the Los Angeles airport, take the red eye, um, land in either Pullman or Spokane and, uh, you know, get over to the game, usually right before the game started. So that just happened to be my weekend. Uh, wow. Mark stayed home, and I went up, and I, I saw Tyler right before the game started. You know, they, they the team does this walk through all the fans, and I, I got to see Tyler during that walk. And then the next thing I know, and then the stands, and Mark is texting me, Tyler's warming up. You know, is he going in? And I said, I have, you know, I can't tell. You can see better than I can. And, uh, the next thing we know, he, he's going in, and I'm, you know, fielding texts for Mark and my friends, really, from all over the place as they're watching Tyler, you know, go into the game. And it was it was pretty magical. I think, of course, I love that they, they won, and it's special for him and the team that they did it in triple overtime and that he did get, you know, placed it on their shoulders. But I think the part that I loved the most was spending time with them after the game, you know, and... He, we walked arm in arm, you know, back to the hotel room, my hotel, and just talked about he couldn't believe it happened, and, and he just was so excited and, and smiling. But um, he just wanted to share the moment after the game with me and then make sure that he was right on the phone calling his dad and his brothers um, to see what they might do. Wow. Yeah, that was an amazing game. And then, so, yeah, going back to the, that other, the second Arizona game, um, you know, he threw for over 500 yards, but yeah, he did have four interceptions. They lost the game and he took a rough hit in that one. And then you, you guys said that, and I mean, I could see the tape. He looked very sad and somber in the press conference. And it was kind of after that game that he started getting more distant. And that that's when you saw the change in his behavior, right? Less contact and the contact was getting shorter. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of this stuff is, um, it's imprecise, you know, um, but, but for that game, uh, yeah, the, the crappy thing about that game, of course, is that was his job. His job was to go out there and try to win the game, right? It was to lead the team back. And there were so many spectacularly positive moments, and there was a couple of forced throws. And then, you know, you, you let guys run down the field 80 yards a pop and, and you have to come back and chase that. You're going to also be, you know, you're be, you're coming from behind. You mm -hmm. know, he said after that game, if I could just get in when the score's 0-0, zero, zero, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it would be, and he was sort of joking. But, but afterwards, it wasn't, it wasn't just Tyler. I mean, in the grouping of the parents and, 
stuff downstairs waiting for them to get out of the, you know, out of their meeting and leave. The whole place was, was just devastated and somber. And, you know, there was so much, you know, we came back to be, we were winning that game. So down by whatever, 21 again. And we were up at one point on Tyler's second um, running touchdown. We were ahead and we just didn't win the game. So that, yeah, he, and he did, he got hard. Um, and afterwards he was, he, he was as mad and miserable as I've ever seen him after a football game. And he, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people, us included, not every game is going to end like Boise State. And it's, it's great to be competing. You want to, you want to compete and stuff. But I mean, he felt very strongly that it's always his, it was never his fault that they won, but it was always his fault that they lost. And, and picks do that. You know, I, I think the last one was a pick six. The game was over, but I think that just solidified it. Um, and yes, he, he, his anger, if you can, is what I sense. Not mm. just his anger underneath sort of those questions in the press conference. Um, he, the weight of the world was on his shoulder. And it was just, it was just like the bowl game. I, I felt like that those two interviews were nearly the same, you know, the way he answered questions and the way he kind of held himself and held himself accountable. And, and then just privately, he, he said, it's just embarrassing. You know? It's embarrassing to lose like that and not be able to finish it. And stuff. So, yeah. And then I think, I mean, your comment about, and we've, we've said this obviously, it's less noticeable while it's happening, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's easy to dissect looking backwards. But what was ha- the other part that was happening is towards between then and the bowl game prep. So, you know, we had a lot of things going on at that school, including Coach Leach, you know, interviewing it all over the country for a new job. We had Tyler's two of his favorite receivers, you know, were, were, transferring and he so he all of this as as he was sort of coming into thinking about 2018 it looked like you know things were were pretty tough so he was on the phone i remember being on the phone with him and he was calling coach who was at the airport and he was flying back from tennessee or to tennessee and and he had one impression the media had a different impression but it didn't didn't really matter but but my point is all of that sort of happening they're doing bowl practice Luke's hand, I think it was his, his hand, his wrist, mm-hmm. not healing well. He's starting, you know, he's going to start, then he's not going to start, then he's getting all the reps in practice, then he's not. So there's a lot of stuff going on. So it's hard to know how much of that was just pulling away at him, mm-hmm. you know, and taking time so his answer was shorter and stuff. But when you reflect on it and think about his the way he did certain things, what he said, the way he said it, there was a lot more. I overslept. I forgot my phone. I they were they were just the, the you know the, the excuses that Tyler's smarter than that you know. Mm-hmm. He, but he just he wasn't spending much time explaining himself anymore. He was just sort of being you know depending on which view you took, either slipping away and, and being more quiet, or he was being pulled in so many other directions. Um, you know, he has a private life and a girlfriend and a former girlfriend and friends and friends in Pullman, friends in California. You know, the game's coming. He's got everybody wants 
to come down and watch them play. They're all wishing them well. Meanwhile, we're playing Michigan State, who was, you know, on a roll, and uh, and and we had a tough game there too. And and he was despondent about the loss there. I, I know that when we went to to Mexico. I mean, he just he didn't really shake out of that. But but that's what we thought. We thought it was you're you're sad. You lost the bowl game. Of course, you're sad. Mm-hmm. It, it's okay. It's okay to be sad. Was he depressed? Did he get hit too hard in the Arizona game? Did that change things? It's all it's speculative because you really need data to make that to make those leaps. But it's very easy to sort of tie them together now, right? Mm-hmm. Those sure. things sort of flow in a timeline. And um, trust me, I, if if we knew for sure, we'd certainly tell everybody. But we're we're in the same position of completely to this day, Chuck wake up this morning i still have no idea i, I have it i have some, i'm sorry i don't know what happened yeah. and i don't know why I couldn't well, talk to it. there was a at one point in between uh, the arizona game and the bowl game i think it was a utah game and um his brother kelly was there and talked to him after that game and 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 Kelly kind of called him out on his uh kind of being distant and and they had a really good talk and and i think at that point kelly maybe thought things were better yeah, I, I have a memory of that too, and I, I think he, Powder may have said to Kelly, you know, I, I'm just sad, and I, I don't know why I'm sad, mm. and we didn't really know that uh, or that they had that conversation until after Tyler had passed. And, you know, I, I look back to that time when he came to our house in California after the bowl game. We had about a week uh, before we left for Cabo. And he says, hey, mom, let's go shopping. I'm going to hang out with my California friends. And I want to get some new clothes from Cabo, for Cabo and maybe bring some new clothes back to Washington. And so, it's, you know, I was buying new clothes, getting new shoes. We were doing those kind of things. We were packing for our trip. Um, you know, he, when someone does something like that, you're absolutely not thinking they don't want to be here tomorrow. Right, mm-hmm. um, and not just the clothes, but I think just the planning part. And that I, I was, I was I wake up every day, and first of all, we still can't believe he's gone. Can't believe it at all. Um, and then um, it's just miserable. We're just miserable about it. Try not to be for the other two, um, but it's hard when you're you're in your head. Yeah. So, and I, I, I didn't know this, that he was, uh, his friend, CJ Dimery, who was a wide receiver at Wazoo, he had actually opened up to Tyler about his own depression. And in fact, Tyler would take him to counseling appointments. Yeah, I'd take him and he, CJ didn't have a car at that time, so Tyler would drive him. He loved CJ. Tyler and CJ were inseparable up there and would throw together when they were down in California. Um, CJ's parents lived in um, San Diego, you know, Carlsbad area. So they'd meet each other. I remember going and taking, driving Tyler with them to go meet CJ. And they threw at some park in Newport Beach and it must have been a thousand degrees or it felt like it. And, you know, they, they just, I, I was so, ha- I remember being so happy because Tyler, you could just tell how comfortable Tyler was around CJ. And they, they, they talked 
easily. They got a lot. So, so that was, that was CJ and CJ was his roommate on top of that, him and Kirkland. And so, yeah, so Tyler drove CJ to these appointments and we talk about it when we go out and tell Tyler's story on campus and stuff that, you know, here's Tyler. He, he loved CJ. He knows CJ was struggling a little bit and wanted to get things off, off his, his chest and he thought counseling was helping. They stayed, you know, Tyler would go get burgers or pizza or whatever and they'd sit in the car after the appointment and talk about it. Hmm. And so Tyler understood, you know, understood that that was something people did when they needed to and knew where to go, in fact, right? Hey, can you give me an appointment? I'd like, it might be good for me or whatever. But here's what I also know about Tyler. CJ's mom died from cancer when he was very young, and that's what he was mostly talking about in Tyler's mind. And and that's a quote-unquote legitimate reason to go to a therapist mm-hmm. in Tyler's mind. Tyler having uncontrollable, difficult, depressed, anxious thoughts, um, not based on, hey, my parents are fine, my brothers are great, I I have money, I have food, I have a school, I'm, I don't have any physical ailments, you know, I'm not injured, all of that stuff. I know, knowing Tyler, I'm sure that weighed on him. Like, why am I, why do I need help when this guy lost his mom when he was young? That makes sense, but doesn't make sense to me. And I think he, I think he was suffering, you know, in silence and mm-hmm. not wanting to tell anybody because he didn't feel like he deserved it, which is <laughs> a load of crap, obviously. And that's what we're out talking about with Lindsay Pope. But man, how do you miss it? a family that's that close that does so many things together that watches each, you know, helicopter parents call it any names you want. I don't really care. <laughs> we, we were there, you know, mm-hmm. just the, the number of hours out of the day spread out over a college career um we were there I, nothing we had no we had so much fun we'd hang around we love the craft and we love the sweet family and so just sick and sad about that and, um we love being up there and so yeah if if tyler had something to say and and i should say in high school you know you tell your kids this all the time i don't care where you're at what the problem is what you're doing, you call me, say you need a ride home, no questions, we'll deal with it in the morning, right? That, that kind of, I'll, I'm not going to yell and scream, I'm just going to come and get you. Tyler used that one time huh. in high school, and he was uncomfortable at some party, whatever. He said, remember, he called his mom, remember when you said, if you, yeah, of course, we went and got him, came home, and we talked a little bit, it was just, he didn't like the people, and he was uncomfortable there, so, huh. so, our, our small history with Tyler was he was good at that stuff. Yeah. You know, he, he, if he felt uncomfortable, he wouldn't go. If he didn't like where he was at, he'd extricate himself. If he really needed help, he'd call his parents and we'd help him get out of it. So his, his history was one of, wow, this kid kind of got it all, not all figured out, but he's got it all together. He has the tools. He's growing up. He's maturing. Um, has some great people around him. What more can you ask his parents? Yeah, no, I mean, and everyone always described him as, as uh, that was one thing I, I when I did my research, everyone always described him as happy and positive. And one phrase I kept hearing repeatedly was he lit up the room. I heard that from multiple people that said that. It's, it's true, 
right? Yeah. I mean, he, he lit up the room our family was always in, right? If, if there was, you know, any little bit of a, you know, an argument going on or each of us pushing each other, not physically, but, you know, upset with one another or something, Patter didn't like it. And he, he made sure that he sort of calmed everybody down made everybody make up if there was any kind of arguing or disappointment. And so he was sort of that, um, he just made everybody feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't just his family. I mean, yeah. we, we heard the same thing, Chuck, all the time. And it was the quarterback room. And it was just this sense of happiness or ease or comfort. But when you push people about that and ask them, it was usually because Tyler, Tyler sort of had this, positive, you know, uplifting quality. So when he was with you guys or in a room, he would suck all the negative energy out and all you're left with is just all these kind of happy thoughts and maybe goofy, maybe fun, whatever, but you just felt more comfortable when Tyler was in the room because things sort of always went a positive way when he was there. So then we push a little deeper and people said, Tyler was always interested in me. I knew when Tyler walked in the room, I would be able to, you know, maybe even subconsciously, but I knew I was going to be asked by Tyler how my day was, what's going on with me, and how are my parents, and how's my sport, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was that was professors and students and teammates and roommates and friends and family members that when you got together under this ridiculously sad, you know, event after he passed, those are the stories we all heard. And, and you you tend to be more gracious when people pass. I get that. But if, sure. you even factor, if you factor all that out of it, you're left with this kid made everybody else better, made everybody else happier. Everybody wanted to be around and they were never uncomfortable. And so, it, 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 which is, there's a lot of kids like that, right? Mm-hmm. Our parents love their kids. We're no different. But there is something very unique about the, the amount, the quantity of people, the quantity of legitimate stories, not just misremembering that Tyler was happy all the time. He wasn't happy all the time. Of course, he had things that he dealt with and problems that he had to solve and things. But his outwardly appearance to everybody else was always one of compassion, love, kindness. He was kind. You know, he just didn't have a lot of bad things to say about anybody. Wow. As competitive as he was, he still wouldn't go down the road of this guy's no good and this person can't help and I'm better than this. It never was about Tyler. It was always about, the, in, in football, it was always about the team success. And that's just, I don't have to make it up now. He, that's how he was. He wanted wow. everybody there to count on him. He wanted that. He wanted everybody on his team to know that he was going to do everything he could to make those games and their lives better. And I, you know, I think he did it for 21 years. So let's walk through, I know this is going to be difficult, but let's walk through the, the end of what happened. So, you know, I'm trying to do some of the research here and, and piecing it together myself. And there's a lot of stuff that I learned in, in hearing these interviews. So basically what happened is he went out, this is after, you know, he's been kind of somber. Like you guys had said, he's been a little bit more distant, but he went shooting with some teammates and it seemed sounded like everything was fine during that time when they went shooting. But then he later stole one of the guns and, and how long did he hold on to it? Was it several days? 
because the gun was missing and they were asking, Hey, does, does anyone have this gun? Where is it? They didn't, nobody knew where it was. Right. Well, that, that's sort of the BS about all of this. Right. So what, but yeah, so all that factually correct. Like he went up there and the guys that he really liked, Peyton Ford and a few others said, Hey, we're going to go out and shoot, uh, shotguns and, and play pigeons, right? They're just going to throw stuff up in the air and blow the shooters. So keep in mind, Tyler's never held a firearm, never shot a loaded weapon, never had any training, never had any interest in hunting or, or marksmanship of any kind. Mm-hmm. He goes, he went out with them. Um, they all said he couldn't shoot, you know, the ground. You know, he, <laughs> he, was, he was that bad at it. And, and in that bag, so the way I understand it is they had a bag, a duffel bag full of shotguns and shells. And at the bottom of the bag, was they also had, well, one kid had an AR-15 and live ammunition there. They didn't shoot that, according oh. to them, out there. Um, and they all, they, you know, they were done. They put the bag back in the car. They drove back to the apartment. Um Tyler went back to his apartment. This is where it gets a little confusing. Tyler was moving in with these guys that weekend. So he had technically had his old apartment that CJ and Kirkland had moved out of. And he had keys to that. And he also had the new apartment that he was moving into. So when he came back from, when he came back from Mexico, he went to the new apartment, put all his stuff in there, you know, his, clothes that his mom and I watched in, in Mexico. That's all he had in that apartment. And that's where the guns were. But when they left, somehow Tyler managed to take the AR-15 and some live ammunition back to the old apartment, and he hid it in the outdoor um, storage area. Storage closet, yeah, the closet off of his uh, balcony. There was a closet out there. And didn't they find a, a bullet hole in the car or something? Like, did they figure out what that was? That an, he accidentally shot it, maybe? That's what they think. Yeah. There, there was, uh, it was in the, the driver's side door, um, and there was, yeah, a bullet hole. They think it might have been an accident if he was taking it out of the car. Um, I mean, this is this is AR-15. I'm not a gun expert. Yeah. It is, it, it's a high decibel loud, you know, machine, right? Mm-hmm. He had that gun for three days before he used it to kill himself. Now, um, we on our talks, we say the same thing. We're not anti-gun. We're not, we have no problem with anybody doing anything that they need to do, except please do it responsibly. If this gun had been trigger locked, if this mm. gun had been locked in, in a case like most responsible gun owners have, there's zero chance Tyler would have been able to use it to hurt himself. There's also research, Chuck, that says when, when suicide attempters fail using a firearm, they're the least likely group to then try another method. Meaning, mm-hmm. well, he, he did, you know, the gun didn't fire, so he jumped off the building. There's hmm. not a lot of research data that shows that's accurate. And so yeah. it's hard to, to sit here without getting more and more upset and angry about the fact that those guns weren't properly taken care of. On, on Washington State campus, it's very clear in student housing, you're supposed, it's illegal to have those, first of all. Mm. Second of all, it's supposed to be stored at the police station, and hmm. you can check them in or out 24 hours a day. 
And lastly, they should be trigger locked or, or case locked at, at, at whatever time. Several hours after they got back from shooting, they called Tyler. We don't know where Tyler was at the time. He wasn't with them. And they said, we're missing the AR-15. Did you see it? No. Tyler went over there and they looked for two hours through the new apartment. Obviously, Tyler knew where it was. Wow. Looked and looked and looked and couldn't believe it. So if you're missing an AR-15 and live ammunition, please report it stolen when you can't find it after four or five hours. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. Right. If, if right. we had home police interviewing Tyler, breaking him down, breaking the guys down, where did it go? Looking through, you know, the, the old apartment, seeing what a disaster that was, that we could have put some of this stuff together. Woulda, coulda, shoulda, I get yeah. all that, but yeah. still, it's still an important point to know going forward for other people, I think. Absolutely. So then... He texts, I don't know if he, if he texted anyone else, but I know he texted his high school girlfriend and he just said, I'm sorry for everything. Was she, she must've been confused by that. Right. Or was there more to the conversation? No, I mean, I, I kind of know why that happened. He, he had been dating her for a few years, mostly all through the time he was uh, a sophomore. So when he graduated to a year or two, when uh, he was at Washington state and the bowl game in San Diego, just you know, months before, not even a month, just a few weeks before he passed, uh, she came down there to see him, and uh, the Tyler was also dating another girl at the same time, and the, the friends of the, this other girl, who's a volleyball player at the Washington State, texted this girlfriend and said, "Tyler's former girlfriend is down here. Oh my gosh!" And so that led into a little oh. bit of confrontation and I, I think Tyler felt bad that you know he hurt his old girlfriend's feeling and his current girlfriend's feeling by, by seeing his old girlfriend and basically they just went out to dinner at Spaghetti Factory in San Diego <laughs> mm. um, so I think you know he wanted to apologize to her he, he felt bad so he did text her that um, but we had been texting Tyler um from the, the time that he left Mexico until just the day that he died, you know, we, we were texting about mom's weekend and the concert that was going to happen. And I was going to be up there just a few weeks later for mom's weekend up in Pullman and talking about his move. And we went back and forth, you know, let me just get you movers, Tyler. No, mom, I'm 21 years old. I'm, you know, I can move myself out of my apartment into, you know, my new apartment. And, you know, he texted his brothers um, the night before he died. He was playing video games with both Kelly and Ryan. Kelly in Utah, where he was going to school. Ryan at home with us in California, and Tyler up in, in Washington. And then, you know, less than ten hours later, he was gone. Yeah. So, and then they, when they first called you, uh, your initial reaction was. Maybe it was a car accident because they just said he was missing. They didn't know what happened. And you guys thought it was maybe a car accident because he was a bad driver. Yeah, he wasn't the best driver. Well, we always worried about his driving. I mean, the weather's terrible up there most of the time. The roads are slick and slippery. He wasn't a great driver, meaning he, he was a conscientious driver, but he, you know, he bumped into things here and there, not, not caused major accidents. He just sort of, you know, was, was a little bit, um, less than uh, diligent when it came to parking his car and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's unclear to us still what anybody knew when they called, but they, they said they, 
that Tyler had missed practice in the morning and the guys were out looking for him because they couldn't find it. His car wasn't at his apartment. Um, they knocked on the door. He was, he didn't answer, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, the, the guys ended up breaking down the door before the cops came and found Tyler in the closet. So, uh, All right. So he shot himself with an assault rifle that he had stolen. And then the coach called you and said, Tyler's no longer with us. And Kim, you couldn't breathe. And Mark, you didn't want to believe it. Um, the coach called us. That was a state coach. It was Coach Huff. And yeah. Anna called the first time to say that Tyler was missing and they were putting out a, a missing person's report. Um, and the first thing we did is we sort of just put Mark um, in a car and, and got him straight to the airport because we, we wow. thought they're going to find Tyler and one of us could be there when they find Tyler, whatever it was, mm-hmm. whatever. If he got an accident, if so, you know, something happened, one of us needs to be there. So Mark was at the airport um, and I stayed back at home with Ryan, you know, waiting by the phone. And we, I got that, the second call, might have been the third call from, from Coach Huff. And, um, well, I didn't even know why he was no longer with us. Like we didn't know at that point what happened, um, just that he was dead. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I'm not sure how Kelly found out. I, I can't remember. Kelly was calling. Kelly was calling his friends, and I don't know which one. One of them told him, and then I was waiting for the flight. You know, I was panicked. Of course, I didn't want to get on the flight because I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be in a position where I couldn't know what was happening. Mm. And, uh, but as I was waiting for the flight, then Kelly called me or texted me and he just said, dad. And, you know, I immediately knew that it was bad. And, um, so I called him and he was, he was upset and he was telling me what happened. And, um, and then I called Kim. Well, Ryan was texting me this whole time it, it, saying, please come home, please come home. And I said, I, I, I will. And then I talked to Kim, who for a minute just said, oh, Kelly doesn't know for sure, Mark. He's, he's getting bad information and he's jumping to conclusions and stuff. And, and it threw me because uh, for a little bit, I had just a little bit of hope, but I knew what Kelly said, too. So I raced outside. I got in the car and Tyler, Ryan was calling me. And I got home, and and I think you know we talked about it later. But Kim was just in denial, you know, she just didn't want to believe it. And by the time I got there, she was having a tough time breathing, and Ryan was with her, and we got her some help and and stuff. But uh, yeah, it's just as bad a day as you're ever gonna have. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be my initial reaction too, just from you know what we've talked about and what kind of kid he was you just wouldn't believe that you wouldn't want to believe that something like that is true. No, I mean, coach Lee, so many people at coach, I remember talking to right away too. And he said, are you sure somebody didn't kill him? You know, like it, there's no way that Tyler did that. And, and, and it did, you know, at one point you go through a lot of bad things and your son's gone. Secondary is how he's gone. Right. Fact that he's gone is the worst news, and then that he died, and then then we heard from the corner. I I got a call late that night, and or we did, and um, she said that the corner said that he left the note, and we have it here. So we kind of thought, oh my god, at least we're going to find out something. And 
we we've never we won't we have we haven't released what it says, but it didn't. It wasn't a dear dad, mom. Here's what happened. This is why I have to go. No, at all. And it, it wasn't. You know, there was no information of value to anybody else. No specifics. So, no nothing. No. And so it was three words. I mean, there there oh wasn't um, there wasn't much information in it. Um, and we've never actually seen it. It's still in the sealed um, the sealed envelope that we got uh, by FedEx from uh, the Tulsa Police Department. The coroner's report is still in there. I'm sure there are photos in there. It's in the safety deposit box. We've never opened it. We've never seen it. We probably never will. Wow. And then they did an autopsy later of the Mayo Clinic, and they said that he had stage one CTE. They said that the the medical examiner said he had the brain of a 65-year-old? No. So, okay. So, Mark, a little bit. What happened was when we were in the coroner's the funeral home in Pullman, and we were talking about what had happened. They said that they got a call from the Mayo Clinic, and the Mayo Clinic asked if they could have Tyler's brain to do an autopsy. And, you know, we're numb at that point. We're, yeah. you know, foggy, everything's blurry. But I do remember Mark and I looking at each other and saying, yes, absolutely, please. Well, we were also getting requests. Tyler was a donor. Mm. And the only only thing he could donate was his other cornea, mm. um, and so we were getting those calls. To, I'm not exact. I can't remember exactly. They weren't courtesy calls, but we still had to we had to consent. I don't know. I don't know why, but maybe it was how he died or something. But yeah. so we gave that, and, and some lucky person was able to use his cornea. Great. There's a, a young man. I think. He's probably 25, 26 now and from the Washington uh, state area. And he has one of Tatter's corneas. Um, and I think we got we got that call before we even went up to Pullman because it would have to, it was an immediate thing. So we had already agreed to, to donate uh, Tatter's eye. Uh, and then the Mayo Clinic came, actually, that request came when we were at the funeral. Yeah. And then you didn't find the phone for six or seven months. And then when you found it, you thought there'd be, again, you're trying to figure out why you thought there'd be some clues, but there really wasn't much on the phone, right? He didn't look up depression or suicide or anxiety. He just looked up how to load an AR-15, how to clean it and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, the other, the other part, you know, he, um, so we have his, we have his iPad, we have his computer at that point, but we mm. didn't have his phone. And there's still, I mean, there's, you know, what is it, 50 gigabyte of information on there. We have about two terabytes, you know, these big hard drives that we can access. Mm-hmm. And there's links to, to deleted text, there's links to deleted videos and pictures and things like that. And, you know, it's, it's very difficult to move through that information um, on the best days. Um, and it's impossible on, on most days. So we've gone through... The, We've gone through the more recent history to the, to get a sense that he didn't use that phone to look that information up for sure. Mm-hmm. It, it, it appears there were some other things right around the time he died. Um, and then, as you say, and I think we've said, obviously, that it was only a few hours before he actually died that he, he looked up how to use it, load it, how to position it without hurting anybody else. And, um, Things like that, but one one 
also, I just gave the, I had talked to the Elite 11 quarterbacks down in Nashville um, this year, a couple days ago, and I told them the story. It, um, it's as close to a note, I think, as Kim and I get, which is, he changed, you know, Tyler was like every other 21-year-old. He didn't really keep track of passwords. He used the same ones over and over again. He used one, 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 you know, or or all zeros or all threes or whatever. And um, and some other ones that we knew. And his girlfriend knew and his brothers knew. His teammates and roommates knew. We tried a couple of those before we had the phone. Um, Celebrate helped us unlock the phone. And... And that's a really long, arduous process to, to run algorithms against basically six digits until it cracks, until it breaks. So when I got the phone back, the actual numbers that you use to unlock Tyler's phone were on a sticky note pressed on top of the phone. And when you look at those numbers, they don't look like anything. I mean, Kim and I looked at it over and over with my sister or whatever. And everybody looked at it long enough until... It didn't make any sense. There's never any part of his sort of password set that we've been used to. They look like random numbers until I think Kim and Christine and they called me, but figured out that the only real word that makes sense that that correlates to those numbers is the word sorry. Mm. So if you type sorry in, it's five letters, and then you add an extra Y or, or... a nine or, you know, mm. whatever, but that's, that's, his, that's, his, and it was, cha- you know, you can look at the, at the make metadata in the phone and it was changed. It was changed before, uh, before he died. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, but not, not a year before, right? right? right. This is relatively. So he, he hit his phone in, in the apartment and I guess he hit it. Hmm. He dropped it in, the floor heater. Um, wow. And yeah, just dropped it right in there. And on the back of that phone was, you know, that little pocket where you put your driver's license, credit yeah. card, school ID. Um, so it wasn't found until it was that summer. And I uh, I got a call from the Pullman Police Department. And they said the, the individuals that just moved into Tatter's apartment um, found Tatter's phone. They were actually sitting on the couch, um, and they looked over, and they saw something kind of shiny in this hmm. floor heater. So they, they reached into it, and they pulled out Tatter's phone. They actually tried to contact me and through Twitter or Facebook. I, I'm terrible at checking those messages. Um <laughs> So they ended up giving it to the, the police department, which was a good thing because yeah. they definitely fingerprints. They tried to see if there was any information on there that they could retrieve and maybe would help to figure out what happened. And they 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 did it. And we were up in Pullman just a few weeks later for uh, a game where they honored Tyler and we, the family, was asked to raise the coup flag, which is a, a tradition at the home football game. So... We got the phone while we were there and everything that Mark just talked about, what transpired after we got the phone, getting it to Celebrite, getting it to an attorney who reviewed the phone for all the words that we thought, you know, would come up. And and I don't know if Mark mentioned this, but um, if you think you're deleting something, 
you're really not. So like every Snapchat we learn, every single search that you've ever done is there. Even if you think you've deleted it, it's, it's still there. So we, we got all the information that, that was on Patrick's phone and it, and it really didn't help us piece together what was going on the days or the weeks before. Huh. Right. What I think Marcus said before is that he just didn't want to like bother anybody with his own pain and depression and anxiety. He, you know, in a weird way, because obviously this has caused a lot of pain, but in his mind, he was, I think he was, you're used, you thought he was thinking that he just wanted to, you know, get away from it, from it all and just not bother anybody by, you know, calling someone up and saying, Hey, I'm depressed. I need to talk. Right. And, you know, and so we were depressed, right? Mark and I are unbelievably sad, you know, his brothers are, are really sad, but we've sort of come to realize that in what we've done with Alinsky Soap for the last couple of years and talked to so many different medical health professionals is, yes, we, we're depressed, we're sad, but we're not really physically ill. Um, we're not to that point where uh, are mentally ill. We're not to that point where we'll take our own life. And I can't imagine what what Tyler or anybody who takes their own life feels like it, right? We're mm-hmm. miserable. Yeah. Cause Mark said that, you know, had a hard time getting out of bed, which I can imagine, um, how now it's been a couple years, how often, I mean, you talk about Tyler all the time, you've got Helensky's hope, but how often do you still think about Tyler? Like, can you go to a movie and watch a two hour movie and not think about him? Or is he just always going to, no. yeah. yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, it's in every thought, it's in every every sort of waking moment, you know, it, it's not that we sit there and stare out the window all the time and, yeah. and just think about him, but, and it can be positive, you know, it can be positive. You're talking to Ryan and he, you know, he had a good practice, you know, he threw well and he said, I threw, you know, you know how Tyler used to do this or that. Yeah. Yeah. We do this or that, you know, so you, some of those kind of conversations, but there's, there for sure is an, an hour. And, you know, even if you're really into whatever it is you need to finish, like mm-hmm. a presentation, preparing for this podcast, whatever, you, you really, I can't get past four or five minutes. And um, wow. without thinking about him, about wishing he was here, certainly, um, maybe, maybe the bigger question I push away until late at night where what really happened? What was he thinking? What was his last? few weeks life you know this this wasn't it so i'm sure there's a lot of research out there there's a lot of imperfect science but there's a lot of really smart people working on these questions and problems but the reality is it wasn't impulsive in the sense he, he had the weapon he used to kill himself for more than you know he didn't go home figure out how to use it and use it right he, mm-hmm. he went home he put it somewhere else out of sight he went to football practice, excuse me, played video games with his friends and brothers. He went out to eat with a, with a girlfriend. He, he, you know, he did all these other things for a few days and Mm -hmm. then, then went back and, and ended his life. So, um, it's, it's hard. It's hard. That part doesn't leave your thoughts very often, very fast. So, right. And then, while this is going on, going back to, to Ryan, your other son, you guys had to do an SEC road trip and that must, that was obviously really hard, but, um, 
Ryan threw his first touchdown at South Carolina, he broke down and, and cried, right? And that was the first time that he had cried through this whole thing? It was actually his first touchdown in high school. So His first touchdown. Oh, oh sorry. After, after that yeah. was at high school, okay. Yeah, Potter died uh, January of Ryan's junior year. So spring football, and then there was, you know, the seven-on-seven football, and then the actual, you know, tackle football that starts late August. And uh, I'm pretty sure maybe Brian had cried, and and I know it was very sad, but Ryan describes it as he never truly broke down until after he threw that touchdown. And Mm. uh, he did it right there on the football field, and he you can see this sort of break. Um, and I, I think, I mean, keeping all of that in, keeping those emotions in, I, I know wasn't good for him, but that's how he dealt with it. And that's one of the things we learned from Chuck as we went through therapy together and individually is that we all grieve differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's not really a right or a wrong way to grieve. And that's how Ryan grieved. That's how he missed his brother. He kept it in. And then finally, he just couldn't keep it in anymore. Yeah. Well, and then he's even said that uh, he's opened up his direct messages to anybody that's struggling. Has he gotten a lot of messages or people reaching out? Yeah, we we worry about that, uh, too. Um, we didn't know that he had done that. Um, we, we found out. And I, I think it's a wonderful thing that, that he does that. And I, I, he did, a lot of people reach out to him. A lot of people reach out to us through him. Um, mm-hmm. But, I, you know, you do worry that he takes on it too much. Uh, but I, that's, that's the path that he's chosen. I mean, that's just Ryan's way yeah. of doing what he wished somebody had done for Tyler, right? Is yeah. If, if, if I, you know, Ryan's not a therapist. He's a sad kid that lost his brother who's trying to figure out his way in life. But I know his thinking is, well, if no, if I'm the only person somebody you know has left the call, I don't want to say no to that mm. and yeah. and have something you know terrible happen. So, yeah, it I, the other sad part, of course, is it's not always taken. You know, it's not everybody that's in trouble actually asks for help. Obviously, and mm-hmm. some people may use his generosity that way against them a little bit too and so you have to be you have to be cautious about all that stuff but he's i think he's doing the best he can with it yeah so this is the the good part is that you guys formed helinski's hope uh kim and kelly you guys came up with the name and the the goal is to kind of drive down the stigma of mental health so that people can reach out and ask for help uh, because yeah. I, th- I think mental illness and depression, is, it's a lot more common than people think, not only in young people, but also collegiate athletics, which that's, I didn't know that. Um, a suicide is the second leading cause of death among college students, which is in- crazy to me. And it, I, we didn't know it either. We didn't know any of the stats that, that we've learned since we died. Uh, even just last night, we had this um, virtual mental health conference it's Strengths and stories, and we teamed up with the one-on-one um, athletes and uh, Dan Morrison, which is out of Oregon State, and we held this virtual mental health conference. And there were a hundred something student athletes. Uh, it was four student athletes in this conference, and you know, I didn't, I really didn't realize that 
so many of them are struggling. They have so much pressure on them. They're such a grind. And, you know, they've got to do well on the field or on the court. And they've got to do well in the classroom. And they've got to maintain, you know, these good grades and friendships and their family. And, you know, you look at student-athletes, you think, oh, they have it all, right? But really, what they do have is they they, they do have a wonderful time playing the sport they love. But I also think there are a lot of they're under a lot of press, pressure and a lot of stress. You know, Chuck, I think you said well, we we did really. There's three parts to that to the Linsky Hope mission. Mm-hmm. Stigma reduction, stigma reduction is a big part of it. Um, but awareness and, and what we're talking about right now is yeah. awareness, really. But the awareness piece um, is staggering because as as you just you know as you did your research and we certainly have. I've done ours, and uh, those numbers are unbelievable. And the the third part of the mission is to is to build programs that that can help these guys. And, and we use a couple of speakers uh, in this regard. One of them, his name is Ross Zabo. He wrote the book called Behind Happy Faces. Has a terrific TED talk on, on the subject. He's a he's a uh, a bipolar suicide survivor that. Um, it has really done amazing things in his life. But he has this very important sort of concept that he does really well and talks to kids about. And and that is, you know, we can all be sad, right? We're all, if, if you lose a game, you break up with a girlfriend, it, it's, of course, it's natural to be sad. But there's a difference between sadness, like Kim's describing, mm-hmm. we're incredibly sad, maybe even mildly depressed. But there's a big difference between that and clinical depression, which has been described by those that suffer from it as having a literal 800-pound gorilla, you know, or elephant sitting on your chest. You can't breathe. You can't move. You can't think. You can't eat. And it comes in waves. And, you know, in sports, you're used to physical injuries. You, You tear an ACL. It hurts like hell right then. It feels a little better in six hours. You go have surgery in a week. And you rehab it for a, a year, you know, six months to a year. There's a course. Everybody mm-hmm. responds to depression and anxiety, clinical, diagnosable depression in a different way. And some of that is treated with medicine, some of it through therapy, most of it through both. But when your brain is the thing that's broken or, or, or the thing under attack, it's hard to have those people that are suffering understand it enough to even ask for help and if you have stigma that's weighing in on it like i i don't know what my coaches will think or my parents or my Mm. friends and and you're not aware that this can really spin out of control into a life-threatening position for you or others you heard self-harm and and other harm is, is is very real as well that's why i think it's it's so important and we don't know any of we're not we're not mental health practitioners but that's all we've done now for two and a half years is is be in this space with these you know these really smart talented people who are really you know trying to work on a problem that's extremely difficult complex much more so than orthopedic injury not to you know not to put those down those are all necessary real and wouldn't for a moment say that um but this thing is is a level of you know an order of magnitude different at least from solving it and and that that sort of that's difficult to hear but 
it, it makes the impact of awareness and stigma reduction and program building and so forth that much more impactful because it's so desperately needed. Right. And one way I think it's similar to other physical ailments is what I heard uh, somebody say, a doctor about it, is that, you know, if you're having those suicidal thoughts and it feels so, uh, you know, heavy, like you said, the 800 pound gorilla that, you know, you need to go to the hospital. You know, if you can't breathe or your chest, you're having uh, chest pains, you go to the doctor, you go to the hospital, it's emergency. It's the same way if you're having those heavy suicidal thoughts where it's taking over, you've got to go to the hospital. Well, you just said it, and, and you know, you, you can only imagine what those responses are, right? The, the hospital deals with life and death stuff, right? The emergency room. You show up and say, this is what I'm feeling like, and somebody walks in and goes, oh, my God, you're having a panic attack. You'll be fine. You know, the condescending ways of, and, and this coming from an educated medical professional, although likely not a licensed psychologist trained in, you know, suicide mm-hmm, prevention, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, and again, it's not picking on anybody. This is this is a societal response to, and has been for so long. We're just trying to shake shake us stronger. We're trying to delineate. There's a path by right. which people should feel absolutely okay to ask for help. And guess what? I hope they're wrong. I yeah. hope they don't need a lifetime of treatment and medication. But I'd certainly rather be right about that been wrong about thinking somebody needed help and, and died by suicide later. That it's just, it, the stakes are way too high. Exactly. Yeah. So t- t- tell me more about some of the stuff you're doing. I know you have the United podcast, which is conversations with, stu- or conversations for student athletes with psychologists and mental health professionals. And then there's the, uh, in conjunction with the world mental illness awareness week, you guys are doing this three day thing where the college football teams are going to wear a green ribbon on the back of their football helmet uh, with a goal to increase resources devoted to mental fitness, decrease the stigma, and honor the victims of mental illness such as Tyler, right? Yeah. Well, first, first of all, thank you for doing so much research. Right. <laughs> this is, this That's is, what I do. Yeah, no, it's, it's well, it's the best we've ever come across, I'll, I'll be honest. Thank yeah. you. So we started the United, I'll just go into that really quick because. Here's what we were doing. We were taking probably one or two trips a week um, before COVID and you know, the self-quarantine started. Um, and it, our last trip was to California, and that was mid-March. Um, and we went out there for two different things that got canceled while we were there. And so we flew home, and every single trip, every single visit that we had planned over the next three, four months, got canceled and, and rightly so right um so we thought all right we we still need to be there for our student athletes what can we do they're all sent home they're at home with their families um and maybe those aren't great situations and we know that people actually are struggling more with their mental health right now be, because these student athletes they're they're not playing their sport their senior season or their season got taken away from them so we decided to to take on these podcasts, and, and we're so fortunate to have a, everybody calls her the rock star, but she's a sports psychologist out of Ole Miss, and she is the host of the podcast, and, and she started out doing, I think, three podcasts a week, and that, that's just a lot uh, to do, so now it's down to two a week, uh, they come out Tuesdays and Fridays, there's a mental health professional uh, that takes on, you know, what 
probably most student athletes are dealing with a range of different things during you know self quarantine and missing their season. And then she talks to student athletes, and those usually come out on Fridays, um, about their personal experiences and how COVID has affected them. Um, so we're so fortunate to have Josie Nicholson do these podcasts for us. Um, and uh, the producer, uh, Graham Doty, that, that produces them. And so we still thought, okay, we're going to throw, you know, go back and start traveling again, but there's, there's got to be more. And that's how we came up with three days. So, so it's funny. You sort of said it the right way. Um, there's a day, you know, there's a day for everything. And World Mental Health Day is actually October 10th, uh, 2020 this year. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we were playing around, you know, as a group, trying, what can we do? You know, it's a Saturday. There's going to, you know, obviously if there's football in the fall, that there'll be something to do there. And last year, what we did is we heard it. And by the way, Chuck, a lot of these great ideas are not, they don't come just from Kim and I. They come mm. from all of the people that support us and the people that know about this. And it's, frankly, it's the best way to get them sometimes, right? Yeah. Is a cheerleader, a cheerleader and a fan had a conversation on social media about, um, wouldn't it be cool if we held up three fingers to celebrate Tyler or, you know, Ryan wears a number three too. So at the game, let's do that. What if we did that? And that week, that thing spun up so quickly. We supported it, and it turned out to be um, three and what, what sort of everything gets called something, right? So three in the third, and the so after the halftime kickoff, before the offense takes the field, or as they take the field, the stand, the fans in the stands stand up, hold up three fingers in silence, um, with, with sometimes preceded by a PSA that played over the you know the the jumbotron and stuff in the stadium sometimes not hmm. but it's there to let the student athletes the coaches the fans all know yes it's, it's honoring Tyler it, it, because it's the number three in some sense but it's really there to say we're here for you we get yeah. it we, we understand this and it's it's cheap it costs nothing <laughs> it takes yeah. very little time everybody can do it and some of the great feedback we got after that was you know, a fireman who took, has been taking his 11-year-old son to games for 10 years, you know, since he was, before he could walk, asked him, what does that mean? And they talked about mental health and mental illness and what happened to Tyler and conversations that that particular person and many, many others might not be able to have or have a reason to have. And so they were thankful, you know, things like that's that. That's great. So, so that, that happened last year. And I can tell you personally, Kim's heard this before, but standing in that stadium when that happens, for whatever reason, our tickets, you know, for the parents are on the visitor sideline. And my eyes were drawn to Coach Nick Saban. He was the first guy <laughs> standing up there with three fingers. And, you know, I don't, I don't know Coach well. Kim's met him on camp tours and stuff. But it didn't, you don't have to. You know, that, that's kind of leadership right there. So yeah. he's in a competitive environment. He's away. He's supporting student athletes. How, how much better does it get? That's Our guys, cool. we expect that. Coach Muschamp's been awesome. His staff and, and our AD, Ray Tanner, all in. They're, they're absolutely 100% for the kids. So anyway, so three days. How, what else can we do on the 10th? 
everything has a story, but I'll try to speed up. Ryan gets a video sent to him. He gets a lot of these, but he got a video sent to him. He sent to me, and there's a there's a Canadian young man named Noel Whalen who put this video together that that we're using now is the promotional video with some edits and changes and stuff. Um, and he he thought, wouldn't it be cool to put a three on the helmet? Put a number three, you know just for that weekend and, and celebrate mental health week and so forth. And so after a lot of, um, you know, discussion and moving around and uh, so forth, we changed it to the ribbon, which, which is the symbol for mental health, you know, like mm-hmm. pink is for cancer awareness. We settled on the ribbon because we thought more people could, could join in. It's, you know, if you just have the number three, that number may mean a lot of different yeah. things for your team and your friends. So that, that was a piece. Um, we thought, okay, wouldn't that be terrific for this one game? And so we did this, Chuck. We just basically declared that it's going to be college football mental health week. And here's, here's what we're going to be doing. We're going to help yeah. build the PSAs. We're going to send out these stickers to all the teams that want to participate. And certainly when we get back to campus, we'll help these, these schools that, that want our help um, build additional programming for their student athletes. And I think, that's so great, right? We the, the Jen uh, Lada, the uh, college football game day, uh, and, uh, one of the reporters there. She did the voiceover for this for this video. It's ninety seconds. It's just it's oh, beautifully nice. done. Yeah, and so with that, so thank you for asking. But that we're really looking forward to that because we've got half of you know I don't know we've got ten BYU, almost all the SEC, Middle Tennessee State. And, and, you know, we're working our way west. We just sent out uh, invites to all of the Pac-12. Um, and, you know, we're hopeful for, uh, for a, big, a big contingency on, on three-day, which for us sure. is 10 to 20. I think, it'll be, I think it'll be good. That's great. And then you guys also recently got an award, the Stuart Scott uh, Inspire Award. Yeah, that's, that's you know, it's... Um, <laughs> It's a tough one around here because getting a, ultimately being awarded because your son died by suicide is, is not an award anybody wants, right? But we we understand enough that it's for the effort put into, you know, using sports and helping sports and, and being passionate about and, and really doing something and trying to do something with our student-athletes. And we greatly appreciate that ESPN themselves have have done a number of things including creating what i think is the ultimate um you know story on holinsky's hope when they when they started it and they released holinsky's hope on e60 um so we're very grateful and and Stuart scott you know we told this to them when they when we found out that booyah you know (laughs) one of Stuart scott's favorite yeah is that tyler had booyah he had um, he had a bunch of little, the, the nickname, but he followed it religiously, right? He right. loved sports. His nickname was Sports Center when he was in baseball and stuff. He always had a knack for those kind of fun plays to watch. So it's such a, such a, 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 a wonderful kind of um, acknowledgement. And I think Kim said it in one of our newsletters here recently that um, it's really an award for all of us. You know, it, it's not just the Holmesby family. It's all the people that have supported us and, you know, 
before Tyler died, after he died, um, and in our effort to, to try to help other student athletes avoid suffering in silence. So, so we, we humbly accept it. And yeah, it was a, it's a nice honor to receive. Um, we trade it all for. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, you're doing such great work and you're saving lives and you're really changing things. And like you said, I mean, it's really a generational thing. I don't think this is something that's going to change overnight. It's going to take a whole generation, but now all these young kids are learning about mental illness and uh, the stigma is being reduced. What message do you have for anybody out there listening who may they themselves may be suffering from depression, anxiety, or somebody they love or, or they know is suffering? What steps would you recommend that they take or what message do you have for those people? You know, I, I just put on a sweatshirt right now. and It's actually a United sweatshirt, just conversations for student athletes. And in the microphone on the sweatshirt, it says, speak up. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is, that is what I would tell the person that is suffering. That's what I would tell the person that thinks that maybe a family or a friend is struggling. Speak up, you know, talk, share, um, don't be afraid. You're, you're so worth it and you're so loved and you matter so much to everybody in your life that you have to take care of your mental health. We say it all the time. You take care of your physical health. You have yeah. to take care of your mental health. Well, I, I would only add, Chuck, I think um, along the same lines, you know, you've probably done it, or we've all done it. You go to the doctor when you, you got the flu, before coronavirus, you get the flu or you're not feeling well, and you show up and they go, wow, you've got a virus. There's, Yeah, but can I get antibiotics to treat it? Yeah, I can give you them, but they're not really, they're not designed to help on this, you know. And you leave with, with sort of drink hot water, you know, or drink water. Uh, drink some soup if you can keep it down, right? That's that's mm-hmm. sort of the thought. That's the and and I used to be uh, and still kind of feel like oh, I, I I'm not going to get any better that way, right? And yeah. so I think often, as Kim just said, speaking about it, talking about it, asking for help, not letting it, just not hoping it away. Oh, it'll get better because these things, as we understand them, cycle. You know, you you have good days and bad days and. Your good days, you think it's going to be okay, but then your bad days, you're not in a great position to ask for help. So, so get it early and talk about it. Um, the research is pretty clear. You can't cause somebody to die by suicide. You know, there was one case in Texas where the girlfriend kept telling the kid over the phone to do it, to do it, to do it. And, and that's a unique uh, circumstance, and I'm not referring to that. Mm-hmm. But in general, are you feeling okay? Do you have any plans if, if they're talking about suicide? Right. Have you made a plan? And and there's there's some training that's very readily available all over the internet that's, that's, that's you know, reasonably good. I, I would recommend go to NAMI, um, you know, to, to their website. They have some, some incredible resources. I'll put but that in the, the notes. Weird, I'll put that link. Please. So, but the important part, I, I think, it can't be overstated. Don't hope. Don't hope it's going to go away. Right. Do something about it. And if talking about it is the only thing you do, that's okay because that could ultimately be the most powerful thing. It could encourage them. Don't put them down. Don't snicker. Um, treat it like anything else that you're concerned about. Knowing nobody dies from an ACL or uh, injury. Mm-hmm. Maybe they haven't surgery, but. They, but this could end up that 123 right. 
exercise a day um, oh. is happening. And at 21 years old, at, at, at 10 to 25 years old, there's no, there's absolutely no good reason for suicide. Zero. It, right. it, it's everything else is solvable. Yeah. And, so and don't get up. Yeah, I agree. And I think talking about it is such an important step because it's actually a myth that talking about it could cause somebody to to do it. It's actually better to bring it up and talk about it. It's You're not going to give them the idea. I think that was kind of a big myth that I learned that people were afraid, well, if I say, if I talk, bring up suicide, maybe they hadn't thought about that. And maybe now they'll think about it. But no, if people are depressed and suicidal, they've definitely already thought about it. So you're not doing anything harm by actually asking them. That's, that's super important. That's, mm-hmm. that's, you're exactly right. And that, that's, that's good advice for everybody. Um, there's a lot, you know, in, in stigma, there's a lot of myths like that, right? That, that it's important to get to, you know, we, we run, you know, a news cycle a minute around, you know, here and different things and is it true or not true? But factually, it, get, get those answers. There's not, you don't need a lot of them, but the one you just described that you can't cause somebody uh, to want to go uh, die by suicide. Um, and the words matter. I mean, Kim and I, we don't say committed suicide anymore. It, you don't commit cancer. You don't commit ALS. You don't commit a variety of diseases. Um, and you certainly don't commit suicide. It's, it's the way you, you, you die. Um, commit goes way back to when it was illegal, actually, to, to die by suicide. Um, and so those kind of words are, you know, um, we're trying to, to to learn as we go along, and trying to bring as, as little pain to the process as we do it as we're learning. But I, I think you know, as you described, there's a lot of myths around um, mental illness for sure, and it's important to tell stories like Tyler, where there really aren't a lot of good answers, but the circumstances are very different than what most people think mental illness or suicide looks like. So it's, right. it's an important story to keep telling. Yeah. You just never know. It, it really can't affect anyone. I mean, I was a guidance counselor for 17 years. So I worked with kids, middle school and high school, and you'd be surprised at how many kids felt this way that you would have never picked them out from a lineup. I mean, people always think it's the kid, you know, the emo kids the where, you know, the goth yeah. or whatever you call them wearing the skulls yeah. on their t-shirts and things like that. And yes, sometimes that that's true, but a lot of times it's a kid that you would never expect is feeling that way. And I've had a lot of those kinds of conversations. And so I think just having those conversations and if you're ever, if there's ever a doubt, you know, just ask, like, like we said, speak up, talk to the person, ask them how they're doing. So, right. yeah. Right. Don't, and, and Tyler was, was we think got very adept at sort of putting us off the scent and you know and, and oh no I'm good I'm everything and then when you find out afterwards that he never moved out of his apartment you know he convinced his mom that everything was gone and when we got there not not only was he dead but his entire apartment um, hadn't been touched huh. you know there was nothing packed so he was he was having a problem even dealing with getting out of that. I mean, you're talking about, uh, fast food, pizza boxes, stuff stacked up. And, you know, this is college, so it's going to be messy, but Tyler wasn't particularly messy, hmm. but all this stuff, he, he just, he was at a point. We think that he couldn't, he just couldn't get anything done. And I think knowing Tyler that compounded so rapidly, hmm. he always felt guilty if he, if he didn't do his best or didn't, you know, 
didn't come home with the right, you know, um, the you know grades or results or whatever. Not that that was a family thing. It was just how Tyler was. He always felt like he had to be the best and do the best. And um, the fact that he told his mom, you know, I'm 21, I can move out of my apartment. I don't need to defend anybody to do it. Made sense to me from Tyler's perspective. Then seeing his apartment completely untouched, sadly, also makes me think how much he was suffering and what he was suffering with and from. And you, you can only imagine. You've talked to us too long now to not know. <laughs> we would have yeah. walked to to home, yeah, you know, jogged, whatever, in a in a split second for any one of these little tiny reasons. Had we thought. But if, if I described Tyler, you know, to you six months before he died and then also added on, I'm going to run up there and have him committed to, you know, have a psychiatric exam because I'm worried about him taking his life, you wouldn't believe me because there, that wasn't the case. That wasn't the data. That wasn't the what he was putting forth. He's a little sad. He's a little distant. Parents around us go, you got, you're the luckiest people on the planet. You talk to your kids all the time. I haven't talked to my son in 30 days, you know, mm. in, in, a, in a in a conversational way. You would never think this. But let me tell you, obviously, we should have, right? We should we should have, or we, we're at least at the point where we're telling this enough time that other people can have that the option that, that we didn't have, which was to jump in and try to do something about it. And uh, yeah. you're right. You don't always know what you don't know. No, I think, I mean, I, I, like I said, I worked in the school 17 years, so I work with a lot of parents. You guys are really good parents. I can tell uh, you really cared about all, all three of your sons and you're doing amazing work right now. And I, I think that you, you shouldn't, you know, feel guilty about taking these awards. I mean, I think it's amazing stuff. You could save lives. So I just hope, I just worry about you two, that you, you guys are doing okay. I mean, or how are you doing now? It's been a couple of years. It sounds like it's still very tough for you. It is. We, uh, I mean, I think moving from California to South Carolina, I don't know if it was good for us, but um, it would have been, we talked about this as a family. It probably would have been too hard to, because Ryan almost had every Pac-12 offer, I think. Yeah. Uh, it would have been too hard to watch, you know, Ryan playing the Pac-12. And that one wouldn't have been fair to Ryan. You know, he needs to enjoy his college and football experience. And so having to play in the SEC has been, good, if that's the right word. It's been good for all of us to just, you know, lift up our roots and, and try to settle down here in Carolina. Um, we love the town that we raised the kids in. And for some people, like I said, we all grieve differently, but to stay in the house that we raised Tyler in, I couldn't have done it. I didn't even walk back into the house after Tyler died. Uh, I couldn't. We just sold the house quickly and, mm. you know, we moved out here. So we just sort of, um, it's not like we take one day at a time because there has been planning, but we don't we don't wake up each day and expect certain things. We make it through each day, and we're fortunate, or maybe we work hard at it that we're doing it together. Maybe we're not always on the same you know timeline. Maybe Mark's sad when I'm feeling a little bit better, but. We're doing it together. You know, Ryan's here. He's downstairs, even though they're back to football and he's not back to class yet. But he's decided to continue to stay with us. It's a little bit more of a drive from him to get to campus. It's about 20 minutes. But I think us being close to Ryan 
having us here uh, in Carolina has, has been good and necessary for Ryan, too. And I think, you know, Kelly moved here as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're all in the South of the state we never thought we'd be in, but um, people are good here to us and they're kind and they've embraced us. And, um, and we're being open, yeah. Chuck, with you. Yeah. I mean, we're not, um, when we go downstairs and we watch a movie with Ryan or we go out and we don't go out to eat, I guess, but we go get, you know, get food and we go out on the boat, for example, and stuff. It's not just, you know, shrug shoulders and limp bodies and oh, for us, it's, we don't do that. I mean, we, 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 um, we've learned how to do it better, I think, but we spend so much time on home. So Kim does even more so, um, that we have two other kids that need us, right? Yeah. Or maybe they don't need us as much as they want us to be around. So we have to be present for that. And we, sure. we have to, you know, think through all those things. So we're being very honest about how we think and feel, but we, we try best we can and we appreciate your concern, how to, how to manage through it um, without, you know, without ignoring it. I, I, I think we have to take our own advice on that. Right. Yeah. Make sure that we're checking in with yeah. each other and, and so forth. But um, but yeah, we're. I mean, we're. I think we're doing the best we can. And COVID didn't help. And the right. racial inequality unrest, long past due, is you know none of those things make anything easier. But we're not different in that sense. I mean, we're different because Tyler's gone, and um, we're just trying to figure out the the next best steps. But I think this is always going to be part of it. And I think you're. You're very kind to say, and I think you're right that we're we are we're certainly intending to help other people, and and if you think about it, this is it's hard to describe what I think Tyler would have meant as a person still on Earth. You know, his infectious, you know, happiness, smile, all of that. We can't even attempt to replace that with Holmesky's hope, but I think there's a certain part of us that wants to, right? That mm-hmm. Now, we're all a little bit diminished. The sun's a little, you know, less bright because he's not here and all of those things. So he he might, he wouldn't have been in this position. He wouldn't have been, you know, creating mental health programs, I don't think. But his spirit and how much he loved other people and how much joy he brought, we're trying to do something on par that would, you know, that would would accomplish what, what he would still be doing for the next 70 years or so. So, yeah, well, I think you're doing amazing things and, um, people should all go to the website, Helinski's hope and also the NA, uh, MI I'll put that uh, website on my notes as well. Um, thank you so much for coming on my show. Is there anything else you'd like to say to people or. Well, I, I'm, I would add, um, watch or listen to the rest of your podcast. (laughs) I, I just, I, uh, I, I enjoyed, you know, I, I told him I was on there looking too, and music and comedians and draft analysts and all that. And so I, I had, a, I, I enjoyed that a lot. So, oh, good. Uh, so, so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's good to hear. Yeah. And I always end with yeah. a, a charity. So obviously Helinski's hope is going to be the featured charity for this episode. Um, and I'm just excited to see all the, the future things that that'll do for the three day, all this stuff. I got to listen to the, to your pot, the, podcast that you guys started the united one i gotta listen to that one too they're pretty good there's great people on them. so thank you so much chuck you should yeah. know that that this helps us too um and, and we're very grateful for that and we're always going to share 
entire story and our journey and, and with the hope that it will truly help people. That's yeah. yeah that's my goal too. I appreciate you coming on so much. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Take care, Chuck. All right. You too. Let me know if you're ever in Arizona. We will. Yeah. Okay. okay. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. Uh, powerful episode, in my opinion. I'm very proud of this episode. It's probably one of my best. Um, not that I really did anything. I just, uh, I gave the Holinskis a form and the biggest thing I think I did was I just listened and, um, you know, I think that's really important. I think if more people did that, the world would be a better place. Um, so, you know, if you, if you'd like to help, you can go to Holinsky's hope.org. Um, you can read more about the story. Uh, you can donate money. You can buy merchandise. There's cool stuff. Uh, you know, try to get involved. Um, if you want to learn more about mental health, you can go to the, uh, national Alliance on mental illness, NAMI.org. And I'll put these links in my show notes, as always. Um, you can follow Holinsky's Hope on Instagram. You can follow me on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Um, you know, just reach out to somebody if you need to talk. You can even reach out to me. I do have a background in counseling, so it wouldn't be weird or anything. Uh, I hope that everyone has a great day or night. And thank you for listening. <laughs>